Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. You're listening to our Sex and Spirituality series, which will contain references to various aspects of human sexuality and may not be suitable for all listeners. Today, we pick up our discussion of Tantra by following it across the ocean from India to America. American Tantra came to focus specifically on sex. It inspired the founders of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which would go on to become a home for Aleister Crowley, Pierre Bernard's various tantric, yogic, and healing orders and schools, and the Wiccan pioneers Gavin and Yvonne Frost. Tantra also became a direct import, with Tibetan and Indian gurus fleeing oppression or prosecution to start over in America. This is Tantra, Part 2, here on Occult Confessions. I am joined this day by our sister of the 84th degree, Savannah Hello, everyone. Oh, wait. Oh, God, I almost forgot. I have to give a shout out to my coworker, Pam, who is my favorite coworker because she's the one who actually listened to the podcast after I told her about it. So, yeah, <laughs> shout out to Pam. Uh, hey there, Pam. <laughs> she would be very mad at me if I forgot. So, hello, Pam. <laughs> Pam <laughs> Hi, you're, Pam. You're, famous, you're occult famous for a day. <laughs> <laughs> and back after a, you maybe some of you already recognize that giggle, back after a long hiatus, Shannon Landers, our Instaquisitor. Howdy, howdy. Where you been, man? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to talk about it? No. <laughs> well, there was another secret mission Rob sent me on, and I misunderstood uh... the instructions, so. Yeah, I just wanted you to get donuts, but you ended up in Arizona. <laughs> I didn't yeah. say Arizona donuts, I just said you got to specify donuts. next time, Rob. Desert donuts. <laughs> I commit. <laughs> All right, ladies. Uh, let's pledge it out. We, the members of, of the, the Secret, Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as, as far as, as we know, know it. All right, ladies. Who's opening up the plugs? <gasps> Me. Very well. Carry on. Ahem. <gasps> <clears throat> Plug, plug, plug. Yeah, I'm actually considering switching the plugs in the order of confessors because I really do like doing the reviews at the beginning. Uh, so our, our reviews that we've had, uh, we had one from Problem? Question mark, question mark, question mark. That's the name of the reviewer. Uh, <laughs> very cool, very hip, very nice, says Problem. Problem? <laughs> uh, working through the episodes, addicted, keep up the great work. Thank you, Problem. <laughs> <laughs> Suzanne MS gives us three black hearts. Uh, says listening makes me feel like I'm back in school, hanging out with my weird friends. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> and yet another black heart. Uh, yes. <laughs> Let's welcome some new patrons to the club here: Julie K, Valerie T, and Tomio. And Tomio. Angel and Diego, Fernando, John S., Carlos, and Bellin. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't sorry, done. Sorry, we got a little taste. <laughs> yeah, you just we had a big pause there. You yeah. can celebrate now, sorry. Go oh, ahead. Oh, no, yay! yay. Thank you. <laughs> I was happy with the three. Uh, you know, as part of the plugs, uh, I did not mention last time, uh, Savannah and Jacob have been working diligently with me over the course of the year. Uh, we have put out... I'd say four plus, maybe five hours of bonus content this year on world religions. Mm -hmm. So we're putting out about a half hour a month on a different world religion. We have covered uh, the major uh, Chinese, Asian religions. We went to Shinto. We did Japan. We did all the uh, Abrahamic religions. And uh, now we're doing some of my uh, alternative religions. That's how we're closing out the year. So if you're a patron... You get access to these things and more hours and hours of bonus content over on the Patreon. All right, let's close it up, ladies. Oh, plug, plug, plug. <laughs> the last uh, plug? Yeah. To, in honor of our... Of problem? Problem? <laughs> <laughs> plug? We don't have a problem. We don't have a problem. It's time for Western Tantra. <laughs> 
What? I don't. We're just so ridiculous. All right. Good. <laughs> Tantra was, it's going to get crazy from here on out. Tantra was first introduced to the West by European missionaries. Always gets crazy when the European missionaries get involved. <laughs> They're a wild bunch. Uh, that was the 18th and 19th centuries. These folks regarded tantric practices as horrifying and degenerate. Fancy that. European missionaries are never harshly judging anything, in my experience. Very out of character. In the West, the earliest mentions of the Tantras come from the Abbe Dubois, a missionary stationed in India in the first years of the 19th century, as he recorded in his Hindu Manners, Customs, and Ceremonies, Dubois was scandalized by Hindu goddess worship. Dubois described a ritual feast where everyone ate of Hindus' forbidden foods, then drank to excess, and finally joined in a most revolting orgy. Oh my god, revolting. Yeah, if your orgies aren't French. revolting, is it even worth it? Yeah, right? You're not doing it right. You gotta be having at least a, a hilarious orgy, I think. I don't know if our orgies pretty. No. No, but they're hilarious. I think that's a matter of opinion. You need to be having a good time, is what we're trying to say well, here. Yes, obviously. You shouldn't be revolting. No. <laughs> Actually, I think. You do want to be revolting to English missionaries. Oh, uh, like, then you're doing it right. Yeah, you're then you're right. doing it right. Yeah, that's how you know. You get, well, you get one in. You have to call one into the room. Be like, <laughs> how do you feel about this? This is revolting. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Carry on, guys. As you were. <laughs> Baptist missionary William Ward, who considered Hinduism as a whole to be puerile and a bloody form of idolatry, talked about the tantric shukra, or circle, a woman, lower caste, selected from the working classes, or a performer, or a Muslim, could be any of those, sat naked on a raised platform and was served fish, meat, peas, rice, and liquor, among other things. And then the priests behaved with the woman in a way that, I'm quoting here, decency forbid him to relay. Wow. He couldn't even tell us. It sounds like a working woman got to be treated like a queen for a day. Yeah, it was a good day. She got yeah. fish and peas. So. Well, I mean, as long as she wanted to sleep with whoever the priest, then I'm like, I'm all for that. Yeah, this is a small price to pay for peas and fish. <laughs> Fifteen years later, in 1832, the scholar Horace Wilson said he doubted that these orgiastic rituals were often performed. Generally, he said, such feasts were nothing more than a convivial party, and even when they did get to worshipping and sexing a lower caste woman, this was never for sensual gratif gratification, but rather for higher religious purposes. Sort of like when I have you guys over my house. It's a little bit like that. So a convivial party. But, you know, occasionally, you know, we would do things for higher religious purposes that you wouldn't do in front of your neighbors. But not orgies. No, no, <laughs> not, at, not at my parties. <laughs> I guess that... I don't know, thinking about it, was the the woman they picked, did she want to be in that position or was she like chosen against her will? Uh, I think there was a volunteer, like nobody's having a gun to their head in okay. any of these situations. Okay. So, I mean, it's a complex question, Shannon, in the era of Me Too, insofar as, you know, there's a power differential there. Yeah. Uh, but in theory, you know, it's, it's, uh, should not be enforced. Yeah. I guess that's what we're getting at is like, was there consent? Because if not, then this is super fucked up. But if they're, to a point, if there's consent, <laughs> in this in this circumstance, consent is always necessary. But yes, yeah, but it, I just think consent. I don't know, ladies. I think consent has become far more complex. Yeah. I mean, we could have a woman, right? Theoretically, in a Me Too world, now we could have a woman who consents to a relationship and sex and all this. But if she has a power, if the man she's with is in a power position over her, we will question her ability to consent. Mm, will we mm -hmm. not? Yeah, I have feelings about that, but I, I don't get into politics on the podcast, so it is what it is. Um, so I guess consent is a complex thing. Yeah. Yeah, but I also want to say that these are the visions of white missionaries. So the degree to which they reflect <laughs> actual practices, a, yep. a grain point. of salt with your fish and peas <laughs> and rice and whatever. Okay, so... Today, these days, Tantra is particularly popular. So now we're going to jump forward. I know it was 1832, like a second ago. Uh, but let's talk about, because this is about Western world Tantra. So that's what the old school, you know, white missionaries thought Tantra was. 
Now let's talk about the today. Here we are. You guys have heard of Tantra before, right? Only when you said, hey, guys, we're doing an episode on Tantra tonight. And you didn't hear like, about oh, Okay. <laughs> like rock stars like doing the Tantra with their supermodel girlfriends. No? Sting? I don't the police? To a lot of rock stars. <laughs> You don't, you don't listen rock. to them? What do you listen to? You I only listen, listen to, to classical stars, bluegrass stars? Show tune. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was about to say. I was like, I was listening to Hamilton on the way here. I'm <laughs> sure Kristen Chenoweth is tried the tantra a time or two. I'm not sure of that. Um, <laughs> Patty Lapone has given it a shot. I, it's possible. I could see that. Any, anything's possible. Um, so anyway, tantra is particularly popular among the white sadhus, uh, which is the name for American or European hippies seeking to engage with Indian spiritual practices by traveling to sites like Rishikesh, where the Beatles and Donovan met the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. You guys know who you guys know the Beatles, but you know who Donovan is. I'm saying that. is there a last name? <laughs> no, it's, it's Donovan. He's a rock star. He doesn't need a last name. He's like Cher. <laughs> <laughs> you sang that song sunshine superman sunshine came softly through my i swear i've never heard of this before window today i can't sing anymore because then we'll get sued but... <laughs> I, nope because i've made my mind up you're going to be mine nope <laughs> does not <laughs> ring a bell <laughs> Superman or Green Lantern. We're going to get sued if I keep singing. (laughs) For these white sadhus, Tantra is equated with sex, specifically rituals that liberate the practitioner from Christian sexual repression. Mm. We're not talking about Donovan and the Beatles here. We're just talking about, you know, these white people showing up today. Uh, Because after all, George Harrison, he wanted to learn how to play the sitar, which maybe involved sex, but I doubt it. In Asian culture, it's a complicated instrument. You don't have time for that. In Asian culture, sex is one of many tools in the Eastern Tantrika's practice, not only, not the only or even most important means to harness this power. So for a, tantri- a Tantrika, uh, you know, sex is in the toolbox, but you got like lots of things you can use. The seemingly subversive ritual encounters between elite Brahmin priests and low-caste women actually reinforced the power structure because of the way they were segregated and controlled inside the structure of the ritual. Outside of the ritual, the social hierarchy remained. The male is the locus of power, and the female is only a tool in his quest. Getting back to our gender power conversation we were just having. I love being a tool. (laughs) Uh, so, you know, I, I'm saying this because, you know, this notion, this hippie idea that Tantra is liberating, it's not necessarily if there are these strong power differentials. It's certainly not liberating for the vagina in the equation. Mm. Hugh Urban, who's a scholar of these things, argues that Western sexual magic developed separately from Asian tantric practices but that the two came to overlap as stories of Indian, Chinese, Tibetan, and Japanese Tantra were imported to the West through colonization and missionary work. So they're really two very different things, but the way we talk about them has, has sort of blended them. Hmm. So let's get into how Tantra came West. The Ordo Templi Orientis sought to unite Western and Eastern sex magic. Founder Karl Kellner was an Austrian paper chemist who studied with the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians, as well as Indian Tantricas. His co-founder, Theodore Ruiz, was a singer and journalist accused of spying on Karl Marx's daughter on behalf of the Prussian secret police. Whoa! Yeah, these are some characters. (laughs) Kellner argued that the genitals were a potent source of vital energy, which could be channeled to the solar plexus for, I'm quoting here, transmutation purposes. Despite Kellner's world experience with Tantricas, it was Royce who promoted sex magic within the OTO. Originally, the OTO was designed to bring together all of the knowledge of the various Masonic orders into one, but eventually Royce focused the order toward the practice of sexual magic, arguing that all the secrets of nature, Freemasonry, and religion could be revealed through these rituals. 
Royce did not know much about Tantra himself, but believed it formed a kind of root religion focused on the worship of the phallus. In Royce's order, the ninth degree of ten was reserved for the highest teaching. Uh, Can you imagine what that was? What kind of magic? Sex magic. Sex magic. Sex magic. Hey! We did it. Sex magic. (laughs) They said the title. (laughs) Everybody drink. Um, sex magic could cause the incarnation of a god or the creation of a talisman to achieve this worldly ends like finding buried treasure. What? Yeah, you could find a little bit of sex and then you know where the treasure is. (laughs) That's awesome. I've never heard that before. (laughs) Well, now you know. See, that's why you don't have any treasures. Mm, Damn. You'd be just swimming in treasures if you knew that. (laughs) So... Alistair Crowley, whose name would also come to be associated with the OTO, was not as interested in Eastern practices as Kellner and Royce. Crowley likely first encountered Tantra in Ceylon in 1901, where he dismissed it as debauchery. But he reevaluated this position as he began to develop his own sex magical techniques. Crowley had a line? He had a line, apparently. <laughs> there it is. We found it. What? It's taken us 100 plus episodes that we found Crowley's line. There it is. That's his boundary. Too much for me, you guys. Anyway, so he did incorporate it eventually. So he kind of had a line. Then he was like, eh, on second thought. (laughs) The inspiration of Tantra is most evident in his focus on consuming sexual fluids, which was a distinctly tantric idea. However... The direction he took his magic in went far afield of Asian Tantra. Crowley's use of homosexual rites, for example, and his interest in producing a golem-like spirit child had nothing to do with Tantra. Any inspiration he took from Eastern traditions was profoundly transformed by his own imagination, which we can pretty much say about anything he wrote. Far more faithful to Tantric ideas and ideals was Pierre Arnold Bernard's Tantrika Order in America, founded in 1906 in no place other than San Francisco. San Francisco is super cool and has historically always been super cool, like straight through the 60s and all the hippies and the hate district. Uh, But now it's just like full of uh, nerds who uh, help us put this podcast up on the Internet. What? (laughs) San Francisco. I'm just talking about San Francisco. None of us live in San Francisco, so I don't know what you're talking about. We can't afford to live in San Francisco. It's full of Mark Zuckerberg now. He takes up half a block. I think he literally does take up half a block. Hmm. That's a dick move. Well, (laughs) there goes our Facebook. (laughs) 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 Suddenly we'll have one follower on Facebook. He's not listening. Bernard was born in 1875 to a Californian middle-class family and traveled to India to learn the secrets of ancient Sanskrit texts as well as Indian healing techniques. Returning to the U.S., he studied hypnotism and became a master self-hypnotist. In 1904, he established the Bakant Academy in San Francisco to teach self-hypnosis and yoga. But as you can hear, the Bacchant Academy uh, refers, of course, to Dionysian revelry. I was about to say, that sounds like Bacchus. (laughs) So that self-hypnosis in yoga must have had an edge to it. (laughs) There is no knowledge equal to the Sankhya of Kapila, the father of Ramanika philosophy, and no power equal to yoga. Yoga is the science taught in the Tantras, which treats the acquisition retention, correct interpretation, and practical application of the Veda. After the 1906 earthquake, he he relocated to New York, where he opened his Oriental Sanctum in 1910. The New York papers labeled him the Omnipotent Oom, which is an awesome thing to be labeled. What what does that mean? He's the Oom. What's a new Oom? You know, like Oom. Oh. <laughs> O-O-M? Yeah, oom. It's really om, but oom. Reminds me of oof, like one of my followers. Oh. <laughs> O-O-F, one of my followers. Isn't that it? No, 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 I'm saying something wrong. One of... <laughs> anyway, he was arrested for kidnapping some of his clients. Whoa! Oh, no! Savannah! <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> 
So the, Savannah was sitting in a poorly constructed chair, but we didn't realize that when we started recording. Uh, we are back in the theater. You know, it's been a while. I think termites may have eaten through one leg of the chair Savannah was sitting in, and she just it she just, just fell out. It just, it just dumped her. It gave up on her. Just dumped her on the floor. It rolled me softly to the floor, though. It didn't hurt. <laughs> it gently let you down. Gently surrendered. Uh, any, well, Bernard was about to kidnap people, so it was a, kind of a tense moment. He was getting arrested. The chair couldn't handle it anymore. All the ooming. So, got, yeah, it got too real. So my man Bernard, Tantrika founder in the U.S., he was arrested for kidnapping some of his clients presumably influencing them through his various techniques rather than physically restraining them. So it was sort of like he was accused of being a cult leader, that he like coerced them into doing things that they shouldn't otherwise. A little bit like um, maybe Nexium, you know, like nobody was actually restrained anywhere as far as I know, but they were talked into doing things that they shouldn't have done. Yeah. That kind of idea. But the charges were eventually dropped. By 1918, he relocated to Upper Nyack, New York, Uh, at a former girls' academy that he had transformed into a utopian tantric community. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? You eat a lot of fish and peas there. The word utopian actually makes me feel nervous more than okay. (laughs) It it should, I think. Whenever whenever any human being is wielding that term, yes. (laughs) Unless an angel has arrived and opens utopia to you, yeah, you probably... yeah. He established, by the way, we're starting a utopia after the show tonight. He established a chain of clinics in Cleveland, Cleveland, uh, Philadelphia, Chicago, and New York. Bernard was secretive about his orders, rights, and exercises, which were performed in full on the upper floors of his clinics and at his community in Upper Nyack. These rituals involved full sensual enjoyment of the body and sex. <laughs> I have to stipulate full sensual enjoyment of the body and sex was separate. So there's two separate things. What a day. (laughs) A busy day. Boy, we've had an afternoon. (laughs) Um, Bernard blamed domestic violence as well as cases of suicide and murder on sexual repression and believed some women completely unresponsive to sex were so repressed that they required surgery to remove part of their clitoral no, hood no. <laughs> to make them more receptive to sex. Did he Did he do this to people? I don't think he was a surgeon, but he prescribed it. What? Yeah. Well, oh, I, no. I, I, it's sort of like the opposite of the like conservative removal of the clitoris. Now he wants your clitoris to just be out all the time, ready to ready to you know Intense. Mm-hmm. Intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this definitely is sounding like a cult now. <laughs> Bernard promised that couples skilled in his techniques could have sex for hours without decreasing the male's potency or the female's interest. <laughs> Shannon, would it tell me how many hours in and you're like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Give me a give me a rough estimate. Yeah, when you're like, man, can we just be finished already? How many hours would you say? Are you uninterested? Like, you get out the video games. You want popcorn. Are you talking about just just going at it, or including foreplay, or? However you want to define this. How many hours can you devote to sex? Hmm. I can't answer this. So you're saying south of one hour, not even a full hour. I don't. Depending on the night. Oh, okay, all right. Dep- whether you've had brunch that day, yeah. I get it. Okay. Shannon has yeah. a lot of stamina. So. <laughs> yeah. Shannon is flexing <laughs> here on this show. It's like, why put a limit on it? Right, right. So, Savannah, do you want to weigh in on this question? When does it become uninteresting? you got other things to do. It depends on what they're doing to keep my interest. Oh, okay. Yeah, that well, is Ber- a good Bernard point. thinks he can hold your interest. Let's let's go with the upper limit. Like, what do you think is as long? Even if you're skilled, you got all the techniques. Is this is like this enough already? I feel 
like an hour is it? if you're skilled and it's everybody's enjoying it an hour seems One like hour. plenty of time solid i think bernard's promising you more than an hour shannon mm, depends if i'm tipsy or not oh, for the love <laughs> You got too many Tipsy conditions. Shannon is a whole new ball game. Okay, maybe we can go for <laughs> six hours, and you're like, I didn't oh even know we God. were still doing this. Okay, uh, what was I talking about? <laughs> Bernard built an empire with his teachings, invested in baseball stadiums and dog tracks, purchased expensive Rolls Royces and Stutzes, which are like Rolls Royces, I'm guessing, but with a less cool name. Yeah, this definitely sounds like a cult. <laughs> and he accumulated a net worth of $12 million at his peak. This was in like 1920, 1923. I mean, this is Gilded Age too, right? Bernard is doing his stuff right before the Great Depression. So this oh is when people are just going, it's the 20s, like people are going nuts. They're, And he's worth $12 million as he's teaching you sex techniques. It was worth it because you could get past that hour. <laughs> I don't know. I got so much to do. I was about to say, like, I feel like I'm so busy. Like, <laughs> spending more than an hour doing that just feels like a waste of time. Unless it was that fun, but yeah. I got video games to play. <laughs> right? right? Plants to water, dogs to walk. A theater to make. Right? Following these You're early... saying you can't devote your life entirely to sex? Well, we got a podcast, too, you know. <laughs> Anyway. But when it's that good, Rob. When it's that good. We're talking about Bernard here. <laughs> I f- forgive me. Just got to keep hydrated. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Bernard runs in. He's got a water bottle. <laughs> like the bikers going down the... It's like a NASCAR race where they like quickly take the wheels yeah, off. He, He's like, quickly, here, drink some You water. open your I'm mouth like, and squeeze it in. One of those sports in. helmets with like the two like beers on each side of straws <laughs> to your mouth. Okay, clear. <laughs> Always wearing one. <laughs> Following these early Western occult explorations of tantric sex magic, which remained relatively esoteric and obscure, came the New Age with its interest in tantra and yoga. Tantra entered Western popular religious culture starting in the 1950s and 60s. The beat poet Allen Ginsberg perceived an unrepressed India as the antidote to an uptight America. He incorporated Kali into his poetry and imagined her stomping on the corpse of Uncle Sam. Jimi Hendrix had yantras on his guitar and Mick Jagger created a movie called Tantra featuring the five M's. Westernized pop tantra or neo tantra became a feature of the New Age movement, which then exported its tantric adaptations back to India, creating a kind of feedback loop. So we picked up tantra and then we fed it back to India in our westernized way, and they were like, oh, that's kind of cool, that thing you're doing. And then they would start playing around with it, and then they'd send it back to us and just went and went. That's kind of fun. A little bit, yeah. It's like if McDonald's tried to make Indian food and sell it in India. <laughs> so in a way, fun. In a way, eh, some things are going to be just horrible. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> the McCurry might not go over so <laughs> In In Wicca now, so Wicca, which, you know, we talk about Savannah in our episode on the New Age that neo-paganism or Wicca was sort of like very much tied up with the New Age scene, particularly mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. The Americans Gavin and Yvonne Frost overlapped Tantra with neo-paganism, linking them through a shared focus on goddess worships. So there's a logic to this. Wicca's all about the goddess. Tantra's all about the goddess. This is not so far off in theory. The Frosts were among the pioneers of American Wicca. Gavin had come from California, come to California, I should say, from Wales, where he met his wife, Yvonne, through their shared work in the aerospace industry. These people are all so, like, very hard sciencey. We've got a paper chemist, and now we've got these two rocket scientists are creating Wiccan Tantra. They moved to St. Charles, Missouri, where they founded a pig farm and the church and school of Wicca, with the school operating as a correspondence college and the pigs answering at least 50% of the mail. What? (laughs) (laughs) I made made that second part up. Uh, The pigs didn't answer the mail. That's silly. Pigs can't, right? They don't have opposable thumbs. (laughs) I misunderstood what you said. I did not... I'm sorry. They're running a chorus. The correspondence college means people write letters. You go, like, you, you do it through the mail. We have an internet version of this now. 
you could sign up for a course or whatever, but the correspondence college, you would take the, the class through the mail. <laughs> okay, I understand now. I, make... I started daydreaming a little bit about having a pig farm, and then you were like, pigs write mail, and I'm like, what the fuck is he the pig, talking about? The pigs responding to correspondence is not part of the general correspondence college. That is a thing that I made up for a laugh, but now it's gone on far too long. <laughs> we can cut it out. Just... Nah, I'm leaving it. <laughs> Their witches' Bible scandalized their fellow Wiccans by promoting the monotheistic worship of a genderless deity, as well as what their critics read as incest and child abuse. Unlike many other... You could read it different ways, though. Unlike many other sex experimenters in uh, alternative religious movements of the era, the Frosts were never caught up in any scandal, and so the incest and child abuse themes must not have manifested in any meaningful way. In 1989, they published their book on tantric yoga, which reflects the hippie commune vibes of their early career as farmer Wiccans. The Frosts suggest that would-be tantric yogis join a tantra house in which all female members are the sexual partners of all male members. I could reverse that to make it sound less creepy. All male members are the sexual partners of all female members. Everybody's having sex with everybody else. Needless to say, rule number one of Tantra House, can you guess what rule number one of Tantra House is? What would be your rule number one of Tantra House? Everybody gets to orgasm. (laughs) (laughs) I think your carts and your horses are a little out of whack, Savannah, because for them, they wanted to make sure that you had a clean bill of health before (laughs) joining. Okay, you're right. That's a good idea. We want to make sure nobody's got the... uh, clap but that's uh, a strong number two so that's <laughs> strong number two strong number two their system is relatively heteronormative but this isn't necessarily their fault since their sources are theoretically ancient yoga and many tantric sexual principles revolve around the contact between the lingam and yani or for you lay people the penis and the vagina The Frosts attempt to update ancient Tantra by suggesting that homosexuals may have a more feminine or male energy and could be partnered accordingly. So, theoretically, you could come into the Tantra house as a a more feminine gay man. You have feminine energy. And the heterosexual men would have sex with you. I think that's pretty progressive. No? You guys are thinking about it. Is that progressive? I think the way you said it was just kind of weird. <laughs> it's, it's the way they're thinking about it. It's you, whether you have male energy or female energy. That's how we would determine who you sex with. Okay. I mean, that's better. I don't know. I think the way you were like, heterosexual has sex with feminine man. I don't know. It was just, it <laughs> I mean, weird. I'm not putting together Lego pieces here. <laughs> that's how my brain has to work. Um. <laughs> well, I guess like, I don't know, isn't that like with like I don't know like Gemini and like signs like that? Like, aren't some assigned to be like more feminine and like some are supposed to be more masculine? In, in Am theory. I confusing that? So maybe that's just. I I mean, astrology is certainly not my area of expertise, but it's the idea that your whatever's between your legs is not determine your gender. That yeah. you can. Okay. The, we have you know gender energy that pushes us in one direction or another. But then you would be treated accordingly and partnered accordingly because we really need to have the feminine and the masculine meeting. Okay. But you would be labeled before you went in. So it's a bit less fluid, I guess. It's, a, it's recognizing that you have that energy and that's sort of what you're about. Okay. <laughs> um, what I'm trying to say is gender is essentialized no matter what. They suggest that most members of a tantra house are ultimately bisexual and should feel free to experiment with same-sex encounters. There's a fluidity to that. I mean, definitely. In your tantric house, you should go naked whenever the weather permits, or heaven-clad in the Frost's Wiccan terms. Many listeners are familiar with the heaven-clad terminology. Practitioners start the day by joining together in the common room for the sunrise ritual. The female inserts the male's lingam into her yoni, and the two greet the day, and they touch foreheads and cuddle. Oh. Oh. 
<laughs> Afterward, they may or may not have sex, but only after allowing sufficient cuddle time after the sunrise right. Sounds kind of nice. Men and women should... What? <laughs> what I, was just gonna like, I was just going to say I like my cuddle time. You like a little... Who doesn't like a cuddle to start the day, to greet the sun? But it's, that's really early in the morning. Men and women should engage in regular exercises for their genitalia. All right, everybody brace themselves for this. Men should stand in the mountain pose and will themselves to have four erections hard enough to hold up a hand towel. Okay. Oh, four? You're good with that. Four. Four in a row. Bam. Oh, okay. I was about to say. He flex only has one and penis. deflate. Flex and deflate. The oh, my God. It's like always sunny. <laughs> yes, kind I'm of. flaccid erect. <laughs> What's the mountain pose? It's just like when you're... Oh, mountain pose is just standing with your uh, feet shoulder width apart. That's not what I was picturing. And you, you know, that you, makes more sense. You can put your hands towel. on your hips if you want to feel <laughs> as you're doing this. I was picturing like out of like your hands, oh, like on, your the hands floor, on the ground. Your feet are on the floor, but your butt's sticking <laughs> yeah, out. And he's trying to get his erection up. shape that looks like a mountain. Yeah, you've made it much harder on that guy and to get like, it up. And I was like, how's the towel going to stand a chance? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Under the circumstances, gravity's working against you. All right, ladies, it's your turn. In the bath, women should relax the vagina enough to allow water in and then push it out in a rush. <laughs> what? Four times. Yep, you heard me. Okay. Push it out. Four times. It's good practice for childbearing. Is there a specific reason for four or just... Four is, four is the Bernard number of completion. four was... Four, oh, I mean, for t mythologically, four is the number of completion, so I'm with them on oh, four. Yeah. All right. And you feel you have completed your ablutions for the day. Later, with your Tantra house friends, you can play at lifting weights with your penis. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> I knew. I thought I could hold a straight face for How that. How heavy... You know, start with a hand towel and work your way up <laughs> to a beach towel. Oh, my God. And then, <laughs> and then like a blanket. And then a weighted blanket. A weighted blanket, sure. An electric blanket. Can, can it do it while it's hot? Yes. <laughs> a cold blanket, a hot blanket, a wet blanket. Wet that blanket. That's heavy. That's heavy. Uh, or, ladies, you can try holding weights up suspended from a candle with your vagina. Oh, God. So, weights Wait, I'm tied sorry. To Hold a weight up? In a can weight, candle, vagina. You stick the candle in your vagina because, you know, cleanliness is important. And then you, would, you weight the candle. A heavier and heavier candle is the point that we're trying to... Oh, I was picturing weights getting tied to the candle. I mean, I, I guess it, I, I don't. I don't recall. I don't know if they're clear on exactly how you accomplish this weighted candle, but that's the important thing. You replace you it with a heavier candle. Yeah, you can just have heavier candles. Sure, why not? We can stick a wet blanket on that candle. Why not? There's so many things we can do. <laughs> so many ways to approach this. Other exercises are designed to raise your awareness of your prana energy, known to Westerners as the energy of the aura, picked up in Curlian photographs so curly in photographs when we take a picture of your aura you hold on to these rods and they take your picture and you can see the aura around you i've had them done before it's cool what color was your aura it was a bit uh reddish but then after i meditated we took two and then it was sort of white oh yeah your power the point of the exercise was to show how meditation impacts your psychic aura your power increases when you're anticipating sex or a big meal. And <laughs> according to the rising and setting of the sun and the phases of the moon, gathering and sharing that energy is a central aspect of the sunrise ritual and can be used to pester the people sitting around you in a movie theater. I, sorry, I needed to think about that. I don't know exactly what I meant by that. I was trying to think what, what you meant too. Can you say it one more time? <laughs> Gathering and sharing that energy is a central aspect of the sunrise ritual, and it can be used to pester the people sitting around you in a movie theater. So you have psychic powers, what I'm trying to point out. And you can project your energy toward other people. So you could just like be sitting in a movie theater and like heat up the back of somebody's head. 
it'd be easier to just kick their seat or something. Yeah, but but this is psychic. <laughs> the role of the sun and the moon in the Frost's tantric practice points to their neo-pagan frames of reference. Tantrists live their lives by a different clock than do other people. They live by the cycles of the heavens, specifically the cycles of the moon as it waxes and wanes, and the cycles of the sun as its motion alternates between winter cold and summer heat. It is the interlacing of the moon cycle and the sun cycle with the rosters of work and ritual that make the overlapping phases of the tantric life always interesting, always changeable, and always well worth living. Four or five days before a new moon, the members of the Tantra House engage in a sexual fast. They still perform the sunrise ritual, but orgasms are discouraged. If they happen, okay, but uh, try to do better next time. <laughs> there is a feast at the new moon, since food allows its own schedule. Uh, much It has its own schedule, much like sex. The feast happens in the morning, after a fast at noon, and then everyone has sex. The new moon involves worship of the male, and the full moon the worship of the female. So, no moon, penis time, full moon, lady time. For the new moon, or Mayathuna rite, the male is oiled and massaged and held on the brink of orgasm for 32 minutes, and then everyone dances and goes off in couples for their orgasms. During the next eight days, everyone enjoys one ritual copulation a day, then the pace increases to two a day, leading up to the Kundalini circle, which happens four days after the full moon. Now, the women are worshipped, massaged, and oiled. The circles begin uh, with eating thumbnail-sized portions of cold food, ritual bathing, ritual sexing, then ritual resting and meditation. For the Kundalini rite, the circle is repeated for the number of couples in the house. Now, Savannah, I don't think any of this agrees with your schedule, because uh, you've got an hour to spare, and then you have other things to do. These people, it is their whole day. It is their whole month. I was literally just thinking about how exhausting all of this sounds. <laughs> like I was literally actually just thinking about that. I got Legos to build, video games to play, theater to make. After all this sex. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. I, I climbed all the way to the top of that rock wall at the Renaissance Festival. I think I could hold out for a while. You think you could do the Tantra House? You could survive the Tantra <laughs> House? Rock climbing the rock wall? I have, have stamina, Savannah. Oh. <laughs> for, after all this sex, the Frost say something kind of amazing about the Tantra House just in case the impulse should arise. Because the house is open and behaves very naturally with lots of loving and touching and contact, there will often be occasions when couples will make loves at times other than those required by ritual. This is as it should be, for anyone can make love to anyone, and a group of people can make love as a group if they desire. Keep in mind that the ritual calendar dictates around 31 sexual encounters in a lunar month. But, you know, feel free to have sex if uh, that isn't enough sex for you. <laughs> oh, my God. 31 times. <laughs> now, gang, I ain't no prude, but... <laughs> I guess this is probably, like, an obvious answer, but I guess they didn't care if, like, if women were on their period. Like, it didn't No, matter. you can't... No, but there's not going to be time for that, man. We're just going to power right on through. <laughs> we got to get 31 times done here. If you'd like to conceive a child in your Tantra house, and by you I mean the women alone, uh, because only women can make that decision in nice. the Tantra house, the first step is to check yours and your desired partner's sperm donor's genetic history, and then measure up against each other, because you don't want too large a male, or your baby won't fit through your birth canal. So we got to figure out, <laughs> we got to figure out your genetic history to figure out how big your baby's going to be. My babies have been very large. It can be it can be problematic in the moment. Everett came into the world much more easily than Corinne. Summer solstice is the ideal time in the ritual calendar of the year so that your baby can be born during the spring equinox. Ideally, all females give birth and rear, rear children at the same time. While most Americans didn't run out and join a tantra house at the Frost's suggestion, a vogue for tantric sex did enter mainstream culture in this era of what Hugh Urban, after an article in Cosmopolitan, refers to as nookie nirvana, or the commodification of tantra as being focused entirely on spiritualized sex. The three major leaders of the tantric new age were all Eastern imports. 
The Tibetan abbot in exile, Chogyam Trungpa, and the Indian gurus Osho Rajneesh, also known as Bhakwan Sri Rajneesh, and Swami Muktananda. So we're going to go through these three guys now to close out the episode. Chogyam Trungpa was born in Tibet in 1939. He was identified at 18 months as the reincarnation of the abbot of Sermong Monastery, the 11th Trungpa of Karma Kargyupa. When China's communists arrived in 1959 during the invasion of Tibet, he led 300 Tibetans into exile in India. In 1970, after being partially paralyzed in a car accident, he emigrated to the United States. He surprised Westerners with his non-ascetic lifestyle. He wore expensive suits, rode in a chauffeured Mercedes, and lived in lavish hotel suites. He drank, he smoked, he enjoyed psychedelic drugs. This man liked to party. Despite these strange habits, or perhaps because of them, he attracted a following. He founded the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Hello, all of our Colorado listeners. He made bizarre, erratic behavior the cornerstone of his teaching style. He showed up to his own lectures late and drunk, nodded off during meditations, and squirted disciples with a water pistol while meditating, which, you know, we edit the hell out of this show. That's more or less what the alchemical actors experience for me. So, mm. I have no problem with this. Yeah, get used to it, dudes. <laughs> what are you complaining about? <laughs> he interrupted rituals to have dance parties and orgies. He had followers carry him around naked and broke antennas off of cars. <laughs> what? Come on, man. <laughs> His point was to oppose spiritual materialism or the ego's tendency to transform religion into an object of pride. He was the path uh, his path was the path of the tiger, quick, direct, and potentially dangerous. He taught the, that success in, t in the tantric path requires absolute obedience to the guru, or else the devotee risks serious damage to the self and the spirit. Are the great spiritual teachings really advocating that we fight evil because we're on the side of light, the side of peace? Are they telling us to fight against that other undesirable side, the bad and the black? That is a big question. If there is wisdom in the sacred teachings... There should not be any war. As long as a person is involved with warfare, trying to defend or attack, then his action is not sacred. It is mundane, dualistic, a battlefield situation. This approach courted scandal and arguably crossed beyond the bounds of ethical behavior. When the poet W.S. Merwin attended a retreat in Boulder with his wife and refused to participate in an impromptu nude Halloween party. Let's just reflect on that for a second. A nude Halloween party. How do you know it's a Halloween party if yeah, everybody's naked? Fun. It's fun being in costume. <laughs> I guess you could tell by if there's like a little candy bowl. <laughs> Shannon goes into the naked party and she looks around and she's like where's the candy corn oh there's, can there's a candy bowl this must be a Halloween party look they decorated with little skeletons uh. so this poet Merwin uh, Trunk says Trunkpa's followers drug him before the master and stripped the husband and the wife because they didn't want to participate Trungpa threw a drink at them, punched a follower pleading on their behalf. Uh, his successor, Osel Tenzin, often had sex with his students, as did Trungpa, except that the successor, Tenzin, contracted AIDS and knowingly risked spreading HIV to his students. There's one case we know that Tenzin did spread the disease. For his part, uh, Ginsburg forgave Trungpa his excesses, and the scholar Urban observes that Trungpa continues to be generally well-regarded as a pioneer in bringing Buddhism and Tantra to America. So Allen Ginsberg says he's okay. Urban says he still has a reputation, but that's some dark stuff on the back end of Trungpa. Yeah, there. that's up. I could kind of, like, I see his point about the spiritual materialism. We talk about this, we talked about this with uh, the satanic panic a little bit, that people just wanted to feel superior. Uh, and we all love to get self-righteous. I, I, if I'm being blunt here, I think that true crime podcasts in part are driven by, I don't want to <laughs> ruin anybody's day, but we listen to a true crime podcast, right, about a psychopath or serial killer or 
somebody and, and you know the, the true crime podcast is all about i'm getting on a tangent i'm not gonna go too far here but a lot of it's about like law and order and how the you know the just deserts and that the, the criminal is punished and all this and or you know the guy who kills his wife or whatever and why do we listen i mean come on in part it's because we're better than that guy i mean i'm kind of a jerk and sometimes i'm mean and sometimes i drink too much or whatever but i didn't kill my wife you know it's a human tendency. So I think Trungpa's kind of got a point here. Like this random absurdist behavior throws off any ability for you to take pride in, you know, I'm better than you. Well, what does it mean to be better? So I, I think there's something to that. Let's get naked, have a Halloween party. It's crazy. But spreading AIDS knowingly, that's... That's a punishable offense right there. Yes. In this life and the next. Next up is Swami Muktananda, leader of the Siddha Yoga Dham of America. He was born in Mangalore in 1908 to a wealthy family. At 39, he met his spiritual master, Nityananda, who claimed to have been born a guru and passed his leadership on to Muktananda when he died in 1960. Ten years later, Muktananda moved to the United States to share his message. In America, he attracted the interest of California Governor Jerry Brown, musicians John Denver, James Taylor, and Carly Simon, and the former Black Panther Erica Huggins. Unlike the transgressive teachings of Trungpa, Muktananda taught a kind of hypermorality, a right-hand tantrism of terrific discipline. Muktananda claimed to have been possessed by overwhelming sexual urges until the goddess Sakti Kundalini appeared naked before him and showed him the way forward. He taught that sexual desire can be transmuted into pure spiritual love. But Muktananda, who was in his 70s when he was running the ashram in the U.S., was accused of sexual impropriety. Oh, here it comes again. With most, with uh, doing these improprietous acts with mostly teenage female members of his group, despite professing to practice complete chastity. There are stories of Muktananda inserting his flaccid penis into virgin members' vaginas, arguably in a performance of Vajroli Mudra, draining youth-bestowing energy from these girls by extracting their vaginal fluids through his penis. So it wasn't exactly creepy sex stuff. It was creepy soul stuff. Through intense, deep meditations, you can reach a state that is beyond thought, beyond change, beyond imagination, beyond differences and duality. Once you can stay in that state for a while and come out of it without losing any of it, then the inner divine love will begin to pour through you. You will not see people as different, separate individuals. You will see your own self and everyone around you. Then the flow of love from within you will be constant and unbroken. All right. Any thoughts on Muktananda before we move on? I got one more to go here. No, just weird. Just weird. Yeah, just weird. (laughs) Got weird there. They they all start out cool, right? And you're like, ah, spiritual sex. That sounds neat. Oh. Uh, oh, breaking the antennas off cars. That's wild. Oh, I got, hmm. <laughs> All right, here we go. One more time we're going to do this. Last in our parade of Asian American gurus is Osho Rajneesh, best known for the commune he founded in Oregon when he went by the name Bakwan Sri Rajneesh. He was born into a family of 12 in 1931 in the village of Kuchwada. His parents died when he was young, and he was raised by his wealthy Jain grandparents, Jain being a religion in India. In college, he suffered from depression and anorexia, but achieved a spiritual enlightenment or inner explosion in which he discovered his true nature. He taught philosophy for nine years at the University of Jabalpur before deciding to share his spiritual insight with the world by founding his own spiritual order. He encouraged disciples to satisfy all of their physical desires and took on the honorific Bhagwan or Blessed One. For Rajneesh, Tantra is the ultimate anti-religion. Rajneesh taught that his philosophy was itself a joke or a farce, as were all religions and moral systems that one might adopt and follow. To have real understanding was to transcend the categories of right and wrong, including sexual morality. 
The tradition of sexual repression in the West demands that students liberate themselves sexually in order to transcend. To achieve this, Rajneesh prescribed therapy intensives, also known as group sex. We must love ourselves completely, including our sin, greed, and desires. We are already perfect and need only recognize this about ourselves to connect with our inner godhood. Known for commodifying Tantra, his classes ranged in price from $50 to, brace yourselves, $7,500 Wow! Whoa. for the class. By 1981, his ashram in Pune was deeply in debt and the authorities were closing in, and so he emigrated to America. He founded his Rajneesh Puram in Antelope, Oregon, accumulating $120 million in revenue as his empire spread through the U.S., Europe, and America, gathering over 25,000 members. When his followers clashed with residents of Antelope, rising tensions led to a lawsuit by the state attorney general who charged the organization with violating the separation of church and state. They essentially tried to take over the town. His followers were charged with murder, burglary, assault, and arson. And Rajneesh was deported to India in 1987. Back in India, Rajneesh was regarded as a kind of martyr who had been persecuted by the U.S. government. He dropped the Bhagwan, now regarding it as pretentious, and changed his name to Osho Rajneesh, with Osho having an indeterminate meaning. He died in 1990, but his empire lives on and continues to grow in the form of the Osho Commune International, blending Rajneesh's teaching with popular New Age practices, including astrology, crystal energy, and acupuncture. Never belong to a crowd. Never belong to a nation. Never belong to a religion. Never belong to a race. Belong to the whole existence. Why limit yourself to small things when the whole is available? Any thoughts on Rajneesh or any of this, ladies? He seems like chillest out of the last three dudes that you talked about at he least. He just tried to take over a small town in Oregon, that's oh, all. Oh, that's also, just did yep. That. But yeah, as opposed to spreading AIDS knowingly or doing whatever that weird thing was with the teenage girls, it's, it creeps us out less. So, it's just <laughs> violating the separation of church and state by trying to turn a town into a commune. That's all. <laughs> Okay, it's a little bad. Yeah. I've forgotten about that that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to harsh your mellow. I mean, it, it, I actually, if I'm honest, of all of these, I kind of like the Frosts. They seemed the most egalitarian in their approach to Tantra. Oh, yeah. With the oh, yeah. Tantra house. It, it, it sounds exhausting. Yeah, it sounds exhausting. <laughs> but everybody is on board. You know, everyone's, you know, consenting in, in even the most strict term of it, so... And it sounds like it's only taking place in one house, so it's not taking over a neighborhood or anything. No, but I mean, your neighbors are naked all the time and constantly moaning, so <laughs> that's gonna that might interrupt your your evening with British Bake Off. <laughs> <laughs> they just gotta get the HOA to like get them <laughs> the like H- put soundproof walls up or something. <laughs> I guess if everyone in the town was on board, though, yeah. They're, that's our that's our tantra house. What's going on with those guys over there? That's just our our local tantra house. Don't or mind Centerville's them. Centerville's tantra house. Oh God! <laughs> like where? On the eastern shore. It could be in any cornfield, really. <laughs> in the McDonald's parking lot. I think you're right. Oh man. Hey, uh, we're gonna. We're going to uh, skip the order of confessors today so that I can get around to our sources. After all, we have done our reviews for the day. Although I encourage you, of course, to review us in any conceivable way, uh, including on Podchaser, where we are collecting reviews, and I am delighted. So, our sources today are Hugh Urban's Tantra, Sex, Secrecy, Politics, and Power in the Study of Religion. Also, Urban's The Power of Tantra, Religion, Sexuality, and the Politics of South Asian Studies. M.C. Joshi's article, Historical and Iconographic Aspects of Sakta Tantrism in the Roots of Tantra, edited by Catherine N. Harper and Robert Brown. And Jeffrey Samuel's The Origins of Yoga and Tantric, Tantra, Indic Religions to the 13th Century. Gavin and Yvonne Frost's Tantric Yoga, The Royal Path to Raising Kundalini Power, and Ethan Doyle White's Wicca, History, Belief, and Community in Modern Pagan Witchcraft. And those sources cover both of our Tantra episodes, if you are interested. Okay, who knows how to bring us on home? 
I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. It's pretty good. Pretty good. I, I'm sure I screwed up a little bit of the words, no, but I'm I like, think close you might, enough. The secret order, we generally say. Oh. Other than that. <laughs> uh, the voice boys were back again this day. Brandon Walls, who, by the way, was, was st- sitting here on stage listening to the recording today. <laughs> uh, recorded lo- lo- at Chesapeake College uh, with Brandon watching. Uh, Andrew Mims, Luke Kinneman, and Sean Priest uh, doing, doing our voice boy thing. Uh, joining me at the mic, Shannon Landers is back in the saddle, man. It's been a while. Welcome back. Thank you. And Savannah Barrett. Bye. Bye, Pam. Bye, Bye Pam. Pam. <laughs> we love you, Pam. See ya, Pam. Also, Stu and Steve and Mark, John. Who are those people? I made them up. <laughs> Another out there. Oh. <laughs> you want to name some people? You say bye to just some people. Betty. Hey, Betty. Oh. Bye. Rupert. <laughs> Marcus. <laughs> Sundeep. I want to make sure that we include various ethnicities. Oh. Yeah. Who else? Kim. <laughs> I think that I think we covered all the names. Pete. <laughs> Those are all the names I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am your Supreme Hierophant, and I am inviting you to join us next episode when we explore, uh, truly, honestly, the fascinating history of priestly celibacy here on Occult Confessions. <laughs>